Well, this summer, I have uh, become a coach for baseball. I've never been a baseball coach. I've been a football coach, but uh, Stacy and I, uh, my wife, are a couple of expert coaches now with the Mayra system, and uh, we've got high hopes for our team. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's a little bit like, uh, like herding cats, but uh, it's definitely worth it. Um, you know, it's the sort of thing where, well, this is how you hold the bat. You know, you got to get your elbow up. And no, don't stand on the plate when he's pitching the ball. You want to be beside it. And no, that's third base. When, he, when you hit the ball, you want to run that way over to first base. Yeah, those kinds of things. And I really love the idea of these, these young boys uh, just figuring out the game of baseball. It's really a, a, a wonderful time of learning, of discovery. Uh, but it can be a little challenging right? I don't know if any of you are baseball fans. I became a fan of baseball later in life. I didn't, I didn't play baseball in high school, uh, but I watch a lot of it uh, these days, probably, probably too much. And uh, it can be a little confusing, right, for those of you who follow baseball. You know, because a tick is a foul, and a foul is a strike, unless it's a third strike. Well, then it doesn't count for anything. And uh, if, the, if the baseman catches the ball and his foot's on the bag, well, you're out, unless it's not a forced out. In that case, uh, you know, he's going to have to tag you with the ball. And if the catcher catches the third strike, you know, you're automatically out. But if he drops it on the third strike, then he has to tag you or he has to throw you out at first, unless the bases are loaded, because then you're out automatically whether he catches it or not, right? I mean, that's, there's, and I think it gets worse from here. Like, don't get me started on the rules of balking. I still don't quite know uh, when, a, when a balk is a balk. You know, it's a little mysterious. So there are many rules to baseball, and it takes time to get acquainted with them. But really, the game doesn't work without them. Uh, you know, in a way, the rules are the game. They guide each player in his role. You know, what should he be doing? What's his job? What, uh, what should he be thinking about and looking out for? You know, the rules determine all of this. They, they give instruction to the players on what they're supposed to do. And today we'll be looking at God's instruction for his people in the Bible. We'll be looking at, uh, well, as an American uh, on the 4th of July here, um, on, a, on a day like this, I think about our nation's founding documents you know, of course, today we remember the Declaration of Independence, right? Fourth of July, 1776, that was the day. Uh, but I think also of the Constitution uh, of our nation. Uh, I'm a big fan of our revolution. I think it was a great idea. I don't know if I'm thrilled with where we're heading these days, but uh, the revolution was a good thing. And these documents uh, give purpose and direction to a nation. In a very similar way, God's instruction for Israel, the law of Moses that he gave them, they gave his people purpose and direction. And today we'll be looking at, really it's the gateway to the Psalms, Psalm 1. We're going to read the whole darn thing. It's six verses long. Uh, it's a remarkable psalm of wisdom. And it lets the reader know that he or she is entering a book of wisdom that is meant for those who seek the path of righteousness who don't want the path of wickedness. The first psalm narrows its focus onto the Lord's instructions for Israel, which is the law of God, the law of Moses. And this brings life and prosperity and purpose. 
The law is worthy of meditation. It's worthy of reverence. And as Christians, we don't often talk this way, right? We're sort of, we're set free from the law. That's what they'll say in the New Testament. Um, but this will be good food for thought for us today. So let's read this uh, first psalm. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Wherever the wicked, therefore the wicked, will not stand up in judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads us to ruin. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of Psalms. We thank you for Israel's praise book that we still use today to honor you and to sing praises to you. Uh, be with us now as we look at this first psalm, uh, this gateway to uh, the book of Psalms. We ask that you might teach us more about who you are and what you've done through your son Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, for those of you who uh, have your Bible in front of you, you can probably see from the arrangement of the verses that... Uh, there's sort of three small sections in the first psalm. And this will give us our three points for today's uh, message. In verses 1 through 3, we learn that the righteous are blessed. In the original, the very first word that appears in the book of Psalms is the word happy. Uh, happy is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, this is the same sort of word that Jesus uses in his Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. So you could translate it blessed. Or blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The psalmist opens this majestic book of psalms. There's 150 of them, this, this wonderful book in the middle of our Bible with advice on happiness that comes from the righteousness of God. I think it's a really, it's, it's great, it's fantastic. It's a great way uh, to begin this book. Now, I think the world that we live in today has really forgotten about happiness Right? I mean, when did it become sort of illegal or not cool to enjoy life? Right? When did the world stop having fun? I just, boy, life was different when I was a kid in the, in the 80s. Uh, I have some memories of the 70s. Uh, people just seem to enjoy life more. And uh, we're in a very serious and everyone's uh, uh, offended and, and uh, scared about the world. Um, I think people have forgotten the daily happiness that life offers, offers us through the simple things, the simple things of faith and family and fellowship. I mean, all of the, none of these things will cost you a dime. I mean, the family, yeah, you know, if you have kids, it's, it's a terrible investment in a way. Um, just joking, you know, the kids are expensive. But faith, family, fellowship, the best things in life, they are free. Uh, and they bring a deep sort of happiness. And this comes from our Creator, which is really wonderful. And the happiness that comes with following the righteous path, as we look in Psalm 1, um, is this. It's related to this. Now, not only has our world forgotten how to enjoy life and to have fun and be happy, I think they've sacrificed the pursuit of happiness for the pursuit of pleasure. Right? Pleasure and happiness are not the same thing. 
And so let's think about this for a second because I'm, I'm convinced it's totally true. Our world has sacrificed the pursuit of happiness for the pursuit of pleasure. So they value pleasure over happiness and I think it's making people miserable. Right? Pleasure is often a good thing, uh, but it's only pleasing in the short term. Uh, there's a great quote from R.C. Sproul here that I'll share with you. Uh, he writes that sin is tempting because it can be pleasurable in the short term. We sin because we think we will feel good. Every time we sin, we believe the original lie of Satan who tempts us that we will be happy if we get the pleasure we want. Hedonism, which defines the good in terms of the pleasurable, it's the oldest philosophy to oppose God. The creator of the universe, he desires more for his people than short-term pleasure, right? He offers us an everlasting happiness as we walk with him, as we become more like him. How happy is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, the psalmist says. Notice also in our text, in these first few verses, that in making his point, the author intensifies his warning. Happy is the one who doesn't walk with the wicked or stand with the sinners or sit with the mockers. What's worse than walking with uh, a wicked person? Well, standing with them. And what's worse than standing with a wicked person? Well, sitting with them. What's worse than a wicked person? Well, a sinner. And what's worse than a sinner? A mocker. So one of the worst things you can do is to put your feet up and sit on your rear end and just commiserate with folks who offer ridicule, scorn, and mocking. Uh, it might be fun in the short term, because I've done this, right? You just sit around and complain. You make fun of things, uh, whether it's a movement or a person or whatever. Uh, this is a terrible way to spend your time. And this is not what the righteous do, the psalmist says. To put it another way, how unhappy is the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked? How unfortunate is the one who stands in the pathway of sinners? How miserable is the one who sits in the company of mockers? Thankfully, the text doesn't stop here, right? Instead of commiserating with, with sarcastic sinners, uh, the believer delights in the Lord's instruction. Today, I'm reading from uh, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, which is a modern Baptist translation that I've really, I've come to appreciate uh, this version. Uh, the phrase, the Lord's instruction, as we saw in the text, uh, appears in other translations as the law of the Lord. The word for law or instruction here is the Hebrew word Torah. Maybe you've heard that word before. I think some of you have, uh, the Torah. The word Torah comes from a word that's used for shooting arrows, right? So for those of you who hunt, Right, you, as, as, you're, as you're killing animals, right, you can think of shooting forth your arrow. And this is analogous to the law of the Lord, shooting with accuracy. So God's law or instruction is something that's declared or shot forward with direction and purpose. And it shouldn't surprise us when the Bible comes to the idea of breaking God's law that it also uses the language of shooting. Right in the Bible, in both Testaments, the word for sin is described as missing the mark, right? So God's law provides us that accurate mark, and sin is when we miss it and we fall short of God's glory. 
So for the righteous person, the law of God is a delight. It's a source of pleasure. It's, a, it's something he meditates on, memorizes, thinks about day and night all the time. And it might be good for us to take a second and try to get our heads, our minds around finding delight in meditating over the Torah or the law code. Um, the IRS tax code, I've heard, and I'm not sure, maybe someone who knows more can comment, but I've heard it's tens of thousands of pages long. It's a massive, massive legal code. And I, I don't even like thinking about that fact. Like, that's just mind-numbing to me. I would never pick up a copy and read it, let alone meditate upon it and find delight in it, right? Uh, I think as Americans and as Christians, we sort of have an aversion uh, to laws, and when we think about the book of Leviticus, you know, for the person who's reading through the Bible in a year, like Leviticus is that first hurdle they have to get through, like, man, I'm on skin diseases today. This is, this is going to be a challenge, right? Reading laws can be difficult for us. But it might be helpful for us to think about the ancient Jewish world of Christ so we can better understand this idea. So I had a professor once who commented that we want the world to place their faith in Christ, but we have ignored or neglected the faith of Christ. So we want the world to place their faith in Christ, but we've ignored the faith of Christ. And that is to say that Jesus Christ and the apostles, his disciples, they were Jewish believers who found great delight in the law of God. Now, I spent a number of years at a Jewish school learning about the history and languages of the Old Testament. And uh, in my time at the school, which is a place called Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, I ended up studying rabbinic literature to read about the Jewish leaders, some of them from the days of Jesus. Like Paul said with Gamaliel or Gamaliel, he says in the New Testament. And some of what that guy said survives outside of the New Testament, and you can, and you can read about him and what he taught. Uh, it doesn't hold authority for us, but it can be helpful. And there's one first century rabbi, and this is what he had to say about the law of God. He's got a name called Ben Bogbog, which is, you know, for those of you who haven't had children yet, you can just, you know, think about that one, Bogbog. All right, Ben Bogbog said, turn it over and turn it over again. For everything is within it. Look into it. Become old and gray with it. And do not stir from it. For you cannot find a better rule than the law of Moses. Likewise, both Paul and Jesus honor the law. At the end of Romans 3, Paul asks, Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, uh, he tells his listeners, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, um, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter, or as the King James said it, not a jot nor tittle, will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he becomes the new Moses. He's standing on the mountaintop giving the new law to his people. Who is God? Who is our creator? What does he expect of us? How should we live? How should we treat each other? What is our purpose? What might destroy us? All of these questions find an answer through the Lord's instruction, through the law of God. 
it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that God has given this to us. And so I do, I do delight in that. Uh, and I, and I, I should meditate on that and contemplate that. The law itself, of course, it can't save us. Uh, just as drug laws or gun laws, they don't solve the problems of addiction. and They certainly don't solve the problems of violent crime. Nevertheless, God's law, God's instruction, it ought to be a focus of our study, of our meditation, of our contemplation. Now, turning back to our text in verse 3, we see why. The righteous are like trees that have been planted, or better yet, transplanted, made to take root beside life-giving streams. They become trees that bear good fruit in their appointed season. Their leaves don't wither. They prosper in whatever they do. Those who steer clear of the wicked meditate upon the Lord's instruction. These people gain wisdom and direction and prosperity in the most practical way as they meditate on God's law. And I don't think this has changed. Like, these truths still ring true today. I mean, do you ever feel like the world is just going down a bad path and there's nothing you can do about it, you know? Well, you're wrong, right? We're wrong. There is something that we can do. Uh, and hopefully you brought a copy of with it, with it, you brought a copy of it with you today. The world is going down a wicked path. So don't stand in the counsel of the wicked or walk in the path of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Don't do that. Instead, you can do something, delight in the Lord's instruction. Meditate upon it day and night. By the way, day and night in Bible language, that's a way of saying all the time, right? Uh, we should be doing this all the time. When we meditate upon the Lord's instruction, upon his word, we learn more of who God is and who we are. Right? We learn how to conduct ourselves in a way that's honoring to God. Through a simple and ancient method, God is at work. And he changes our lives for the better through this practice. And this changes the world for the better. And we are blessed with the opportunity of being a part of this miraculous process. So I think this is at the heart of growing in wisdom. Uh, we gain truth from Scripture and we store it in our hearts then. And I think this is the most important part. Then the Lord is able to take these truths and put them to work within our lives. Right? They become tools through which God shapes our thoughts and our actions. Uh, unfortunately, many of us uh, don't take the time to open up the toolbox, to spend time in his word, uh, meditating upon it. But this is how we become disciples of God. This is how, by meditating upon his word, and we wait upon the Lord. And as we do that, he does a work within us. And he gives us purpose and meaning and direction and prosperity, even if the world is going down a bad path. So pick it up and read it. And this brings us to our second point. The wicked are punished. Verses 4 and 5. The wicked don't do this. They don't meditate upon God's law. They don't gain truth. A work is not done within them. And they become like chaff. Right? The Bible's full of farming metaphors, you know, and before the Industrial Revolution, everybody farmed, right? Uh, so my grandparents, my folks grew up on farms, I did not, and I think that's true for many people. And so far, farming metaphors, 
we still remember what these things mean, so it's good. Uh, I've talked to some people who are into farming, and I, I, can, I can share with you what the Bible is getting at here. So in the ancient world, they ate wheat. They made bread from wheat, right? And uh, they figured out they could sort of domesticate wheat. They could plant it on purpose and then harvest it, right? It took humans a while to figure out how to do this. And so they would do that. And so what do you do? You've got uh, a grass, a piece of grass that has gone to seed. It's got all these little kernels on it. And you want to eat those things. But you've got to get them off, off the, the stalks, right? And so they would have what they call a threshing floor. I've got an image. You don't see the floor there. Uh, but they are threshing wheat. And so they would bring all, they would, they would bring in the sheaves. They would lay them on this large stone floor, and they would just beat the tar out of, out of the grass with sticks. And this is what combines do, but you don't, you don't get to see it. You know, they've got agitators that separate the wheat from the chaff. And then what you do is you, you've got this pile of now separated chaff and kernels of grain, and you throw it up in the air, which is just a dirty, messy process. But in the end, the light chaff blows away in the wind. And it's perfect because you don't want that. You can't eat that, right, unless you're a cow. Um, and then the heavy grains, they fall back to the ground. And so this is threshing. And this is a metaphor the Bible uses. And chaff was simply a useless byproduct that was carried away by the wind. And for those who reject God's instruction, this is what they're compared to. This is their fate. Their lives lack purpose and meaning that God's instruction offers, and they drift away wherever the wind might take them. In uh, our text here, it talks about they will not stand up in judgment, and, and we might wonder what the judgment means. Is this talking about uh, a judgment here and now, or does it refer to the final judgment? Remember, in Hebrews, it says that it is appointed once for man to die and to then face judgment. Is that what the psalmist is getting at? And the text doesn't come out and tell us exactly what this means, but I think both are true. I think those who reject God's instruction, uh, the wicked, they, they, uh, they reap what they sow in this world. And they will reap what they've sown in the world to come as well. Which is sad and a little scary. Uh, finally, the psalm ends with a reminder of the two ways that are set before us. As the Israelites were about to enter into the promised land, they renewed their covenant with the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 30, Moses said to the people, See today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I am coming to you today, for I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, statutes and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not listen and you are led astray to bow and worship to other gods and serve them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and you will not prolong your days in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, and remain faithful to him. For he is your life, and he will prolong your days as long as you live in the land the Lord 
swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Israelites had two paths that were set before them, one of life and one of death. We too must choose a path. As Christ puts it, we must choose between the broad road of destruction and the narrow gate. Near the end of John's gospel, the doubting Thomas asked Jesus how he might know the way to where Christ is going so that he might follow him. And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way of life, the way of life is Christ. He is our way. The law of God is wonderful in that it teaches us the character of God. It teaches us the way of righteousness. But it also condemns us. For none of us can satisfy its requirements. Christ has done that for us. And as Paul puts it, the law of God served as a temporary guide, as a temporary tutor for his people. But now the law has been fulfilled in Christ. And he stands before us today as the way, as the truth and the life. May we choose Christ that we might live uh, an everlasting life with him. Uh, let's pray together.